why do we not have mayors boasting that they have 100% compliance with human rights? We need a different view and understanding of what makes societies great. This is the Dependance Podcast. We address the complex issues of our time and how they manifest themselves in our cities and urban regions. From Rotterdam, the Netherlands, we interview writers, scholars and thought leaders. My name is Thijs Barendsen. And my name is Geert Maarsen. And today we will be talking about the housing crisis. In Rotterdam alone, almost half of all houses last year went to investors. The value of real estate doubled or tripled in the last 10 years. And Dutch cities are not alone in this. It's a global housing crisis. Young families and lower incomes are pushed out of the cities. The divide between the haves and the have-nots is growing. And the number of homeless people exploded in the last 10 years. Some people say we can fix this by building homes, a million in the Netherlands, or adding density to our cities. Others say we should turn to financial measures and restrictions. But our guest today, former special rapporteur on the right to housing for the United Nations, says that if we truly want to turn the tide, we should understand that it is not only a housing crisis, it is a human rights crisis. Leilani, thank you so much for for joining us today on this uh, chilly December afternoon in Rotterdam, morning in Ottawa. Uh, How are you? I'm well, thank you. I'm, uh, you know, it's coming to the end of the year, so one's energy levels start to sink. And when there's a global pandemic swirling around, it's hard to keep the energy levels up. So I'm ready for a break. Elani, we're going to talk about uh, housing, the rights to adequate housing. You were the special rapporteur, uh, the special rapporteur on adequate housing for the United Nations. You are uh, the global director for the Shift. You made a well-praised documentary uh, called Push. Um, what would you consider yourself? Are you an activist? Are you a, a filmmaker? Are you a diplomat? A politician? Well, let's let's be very clear. I did not make the film push. That was brilliantly made by Frederick Gerten from Sweden. Uh, and uh, he had a brilliant editor with him, Eric, as well, uh, and incredible cinematographer. So I really, I just appeared in that documentary, so I take no credit. Um, that's such a funny question, though. What am I? I mean, it's, you know, existential question. Um uh, so I'm definitely not a diplomat. That we know. Um, I am an advocate, for sure. Um, recently, I find it hilarious. Uh, people have referred to me as an influencer. Now, I wish. That's all I can say to that. Um, I don't think I have quite the following on social media, et cetera, to be considered an influencer. But nevertheless, um, agitator? Maybe I'm an agitator. Mm -hmm. I like that. Let's go with that. You traveled across the world for for seven years for the United Nations from 2014 until last year. Uh, When you started uh, almost uh, eight years ago, what what mission, what what task did did you give yourself when you began? Well, what you begin with and what you expect along the way changes, of course. Uh, But going into the mandate, I was really thinking, okay, biggest goal, every state 
or government around the world will adopt a human rights-based housing strategy by the time I'm finished my mandate. <laughs> well, of course, that's ridiculous. Um, then once I was in the position for a few months, I realized fairly quickly that the human right to housing didn't have enough currency, I felt, even where you expected to see it. So within UN circles, you know, on the floor of a meeting at the General Assembly or on the floor of a meeting at the Human Rights Council, you expect to hear the human right to housing, and I wasn't hearing it enough. Even within the housing sector, I mean, advocates working on housing issues, whether homelessness or um, uh, affordability issues, that sort of thing, they weren't using human rights frameworks uh, and principles, in my opinion. And so then it became clear to me that I needed to somehow popularize the human right to housing. I had to make it more accessible. I had to insert it where it wasn't being inserted. And so I kind of set out to do that. And luckily, that's my skill set in that I'm not an academic, but I'm not a kind of, you know, grunt work NGO person either. I really like communicating and it's of interest to me to communicate using different media. So um, I realized quite quickly I love writing opinion pieces, op-eds for newspapers or online uh, digital um, um, newspapers, etc. So I started doing that. Then I realized, oh, I'm not bad at doing a podcast or giving a speech. So I started doing that kind of thing um, in a more in more popular fora. Um, yeah. And so then I decided, OK, well, if I'm going to have to write all these reports for the UN, I'm going to make them very accessible and really easy to use by governments and NGOs. And so I set out to write kind of thematic reports that aren't too cerebral, but have enough of the law in them to be transformational. How, how would you then best describe or sum up what has happened to our housing markets in, in the past decade? Is it, is it gentrification? Is it financialization, as you just mentioned? Is it, is it expulsion, as, as sociologist Saskia Sassen says it is? Um, what, what, what is happening? I think all of those things describe what's happened in the last 10 years. Um, I probably stay away from gentrification um, only because I think it it obfuscates or hides um, how um, purposeful the big financial actors are and how they kind of don't care about the grooviness of a neighborhood, they'll purchase a building anywhere. It doesn't matter to them if it's a groovy neighborhood or an up-and-coming neighborhood or a potentially gentrified neighborhood. They can do all the gentrification themselves. They don't care about that. What they care about is the undervalued asset. And so I really like Saskia's expulsion term, and she also uses the term extractive industry. So finance is actually an extractive industry. And I love that because it turns finance on its head because we often think of finance as giving something, right? Giving money to something, um, investing in something to create something new or bigger. But in fact, it's she says it's the opposite. They are extractive. So we are sitting in our apartments um, 
you know, living our lives. Meanwhile, the big financial actors are, are, are extracting wealth from every square meter that we are living in. Um, and I, I find that very evocative and I, I, I feel that that's what's going on here. I mean, these, these private equity firms have been called, uh, and the funds that they set up have been called vulture funds. Well, what do vultures do? Right. So, um, that is in fact the sense and, and tenants talk to me about that feeling of, um, you know, they're just, they're just playing by the rules, right? They went to school, they got a job, they found an apartment, they're renting their apartment, they're trying to pay their rent. Those are the rules. That's the social contract. And these funds are making it impossible for them, for tenants to just live their lives and play by the rules. And it's like there's this whole other set of rules for these guys, and they're mostly guys. Um, so I, I guess that's how I would describe it. Yeah, so you're talking about high finance right now, international uh, organizations that 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 invest, that that search for a place to to park and and grow their their uh, their money. Um, in Rotterdam, we also see the cases of you might call it state-led gentrification or expulsion, uh, public housing that is replaced by. Uh, 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 more expensive uh, houses, uh, houses that 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 are are uh, sold to to the market. Um, that's something to- totally different, right? But also part of this this housing crisis. How do you uh, look at that? I do think it's part of this housing crisis, and I I actually think it is part of this finance the concept of financialization, because the idea is. Uh, so social housing is always understood as a kind of safety net for people who may not be able to compete in a private market. So, you know, since the 1980s, basically, most Western European, North American, um, in Australia, New Zealand as well, um, we've seen neoliberal governments um, roll out or neoliberal policies roll out under like every government practically. It doesn't matter if you're a social democrat or um, you know, etc. Maybe the Greens don't don't roll out neoliberalism, but everyone else seems to and seem to have. Um, and part of that um, was a kind of undermining of the value of social, right? Social housing is so essential in every society. There's no doubt about it. There's always going to be a, um, a, a part of the population that requires social housing and that social safety net. And I think that was at least understood as neoliberalism was rolling out in many countries, it wasn't completely undermined. It was in the UK, for example, completely undermined. But in in a lot of Western European countries, social housing remained while neoliberalism rolled out. Now we're seeing, or recently, since the global financial crisis, neoliberalism has started to attack social housing across the board. And I mean, the selling off of social housing assets by governments, to me, is just a flagrant violation of the human right to housing. Because where do you expect then the lowest income people to go? There is no logic there except survival of the wealthiest and 
obviously that is um, contrary to human rights. And so, I mean, I've been trying to talk with governments and and really assert that never should state assets be sold off at this point at all, period. Um, A lot of cities actually engaged in the selling off of social housing, um, not a lot, but at least I know a few examples after the global financial crisis, because it is actually part of austerity measures, um, which is really worrying now because I read yesterday that the IMF is going down an austerity measures route to address the economic fallout of the pandemic. Like as if we didn't learn anything from 08 and how the the, the devastating consequences of austerity measures. Um, so it's very worrying when, when you know, a lot of governments only have a few assets. Some of them are, are real estate and, and housing. And so if that's what's going to be sold off, it's it's we're in a bad situation. Um, to stay in Rotterdam for, 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 for a bit more and to continue talking about social housing, last summer, I believe it was, five United Nations special rapporteurs, one of them was your successor. Uh, they have express, expressed serious concerns about the local municipality of Rotterdam's housing policy in the south of the city. And in a letter to the cabinet, they point out that the plans to reduce the number of affordable homes goes against the right, the human right to decent housing. And I want to share with you the reaction of our mayor, Ahmed Abu Talib. He, he told the city and, 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 uh, and, and the people in the city, I'm not belittling the UN criticism, but I have seen what homelessness is like in South Africa and Mumbai. I refuse to accept that that image applies to Rotterdam. I'm not the mayor of a city where human rights are violated. I refuse to accept that. What do you make of this response? Well, he's right. Rotterdam isn't South Africa. But under international human rights law, you don't compare a northern, western, rich nation to a a low-income nation. I mean, that would be... Uh, inappropriate and contrary to the way international human rights law works. The way it works is a country is eval- or a city is evaluated against its resources, its level of development, its level of democracy. And so so the mayor needs to look and at, at differently and compare Rotterdam to Rotterdam. And so uh for, that's one. The second thing I would say is there's this principle, and I don't want to get too technical and legal, but there's a principle called non-retrogression. And it's understood as a human rights principle. And it, if you engage in retrogression, that is a, a prima facie violation of uh, human rights. Retrogression means undermining standards that you've already reached. So in a place like Rotterdam, where you've got social housing, the selling off of social housing to creating, quotes affordable housing, which won't be affordable for the bulk of the population who needs to rent, uh, that would be considered a retrogressive measure and is therefore a violation. I mean, wh- why would we allow governments to backtrack on, on the realization of economic and social rights? That it doesn't make sense. Then we're undermining where we've gotten to. And the whole point of human rights is that we should be constantly striving and moving forward, taking progressive steps forward, not going backward. 
I think the one of the logics behind this this development is that um, cities are competing with each other. They are competing for investors. They are competing for high educated, uh, rich inhabitants. Um, and they basically all want to, to be the same thing. And what doesn't fit into that image cities have is, is, is low-income neighborhoods uh, filled with social housing. Um, what perspective could you offer a mayor or an alderman uh, to 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 move away from this uh, this 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 uh, this competitive uh, attitude towards making a city? Well, I I think a competitive attitude toward making a city is fine. It's what values you put forward that's the problem. Why wouldn't it be why why do we not have mayors boasting that they have 100% compliance with human rights and tr- and and create competition that way? I mean, I find it remarkable. Why I, why could you answer the question? Why don't they? Yeah. I think a lot of governments view human rights as a stick that that they get thrashed with periodically for for non-performance and or underperformance. They don't view human rights as a carrot as something that can make societies vibrant, more equal, happier, more peaceful, etc. If they could just get their head around the fact that that is what human rights brings, with more equality, with access to basic services, decent employment, decent housing, food that they people can afford, with that comes better societies. So we need we need, and that's why I started the shift. We need a para- paradigmatic shift. We need a different view and understanding of what makes societies great. And the other thing that really irritates me about this idea of not having low-income neighborhoods because that makes that makes uh, a city look less competitive, well, or it means a city can't compete and isn't you know, a great city or something. What a joke. I mean, how do cities run? Who makes cities run? I like to go to cafes. I do. And I expect there to be a barista there. I don't want to make my own coffee. So I expect there to be a barista there. And there's no way the barista is making the same amount that I'm making as a human rights lawyer. There's no way. And so they're going to be lower income. And when I go to a hospital, I expect there to be a receptionist and someone at the information desk telling me where to go especially if I'm nervous. And if I'm walking on a street, I expect that street to be clean. And I expect there to be garbage collection and street cleaners. All of these people are the low-income people that the mayors of cities around the world don't want to live in the very city that they're trying to make competitive. It's completely illogical. These are the people we should be honoring and valuing with decent, affordable, adequate housing. And is this a message you're getting across when you meet with with government officials, both on the national and the local level? Is it does it does it click at a certain point, or or do you uh, uh, do you get a lot of a lot of hurdles that you have to overcome mm. with them? 
I, I will admit a trade secret. <laughs> <laughs> My trade secret is low-hanging fruit. Uh, you know, I like to engage with governments who want to engage with me. Um, and so in that way, no, not, not tremendous hurdles. But I will say, even with governments, and I do work with several city governments, for example, um, even with those governments who know that they need a new approach, that something isn't going right with the old approaches, there's, there is still some reluctance to really embrace human rights and all that it means. So yeah, there's still some conversations and, and that need to happen. And there's always some sticking points. Um, it's very, very difficult for cities to understand, for example, that you can't just sweep homeless people away. We've seen a lot of protests lately across the globe, yes. but also in the Netherlands, in Utrecht, The Hague, in Amsterdam, Groningen. And you had one of the organizers of the Rotterdam protest, Gwen van Eyck, in your own podcast. Yes. This protest ended in a clash between the police and the protesters, unfortunately. How optimistic are you that these protests can change something? Oh, the protests and the social movements are essential if we're going to make change. Um, you know, I think work like the kind I do is important, but it only I my work is is only possible where there are social movements. Really, um, that's the point of doing international human rights law is to support movements on the ground, advocates on the ground, um, law, domestic lawyers, that kind of thing. Um, so the the movements are really important. Of course, there's going to be this uh, incredible tension. Um, as uh, governments start realizing that, uh, uh, you know, there's pushback on policies and, and laws that they're enacting. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and and yet it's, it's, so on the one hand, it's the international capital uh, with an enormous size and aggression uh, yes. and eager to take over the city. On the other hand, you have this a couple of thousand protesters trying to make a difference. How optimistic are you about you know, whether we, we are able to turn the tide or are mm. we too late? Never too late. Um, look at what's happened in Berlin. So, I mean, Berlin might be somewhat unique in that a huge percentage of their population are renters, um, more than 80%, I think. So that might be somewhat unique. Uh, but they mobilized over a very short period of time, actually, and managed to have a public rep referendum uh, September 2021. Uh, and the referendum was very much about pushing against these huge financial corporate actors in residential real estate. The referendum asked, should units be expropriated from the largest of these corporate landlords, those who have more than 3,000 units. And there was an overwhelming yes vote. More than a million people voted yes in that referendum. And that referendum happened at the same time as the general election. And the yes vote was stronger than any single party votes. In other words, the yes campaign got more votes than any single party did in the general election in Berlin. Um, so just to show you the strength of that referendum. 
there's a new mayor in place who had originally pushed back and said that she did not support the referendum before the votes came in. And now with the yes vote having been so strong, she ended up saying that, of course, she would have to take this very seriously and figure out what this means from a political side. Will it mean new legislation? Um, So that is you know, testament to the power of people. Just to get a referendum, you need 150,000 signatures uh, in 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 Germany, and they got, I think, more than 300,000 signatures to get that referendum on the slate. So the power of people is incredible. And one of the things that we're trying to think about at the shift is: is it possible to create an international network of tenants living? under or with or whatever financialized landlords. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're not talking just like a, there are already international unions of tenants and and that networks of tenants, but we're very interested in, is it possible to create a network of financialized tenants? So for example, if I'm living in Toronto or if I'm living in Sweden or if I'm living in Germany or if I'm living in somewhere in the U.S., and my landlord is Achaeus, I'm part of a network, right? And I think there's something very powerful about that to bring together. A Blackstone would be another one. Um, there's many of these actors that are international um, to show them that people are international too, that we can, that capital may be global, but so are people. And so are, so is advocacy. The Netherlands is a country where just like a lot of Western countries, I think, private home ownership has been promoted for, for decades. Um, this led, led us to, 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 to think about what would be the best way to organize ownership uh, or, or housing in an ideal society. Um, could you say something about that? Sure. Um, I do want to say that um, I listened a little while ago to a YouTube video from several years ago where your then Minister of Housing, I think his last name was Block. Steph Block. Um, Steph Block. Steph Block, yes. And it really amazed me. This is something everyone in the Netherlands should listen to. It was from, I can't remember the exact year, maybe 2014, um, where he basically laid out his plan for the Netherlands and housing. and. Every single thing he said, every idea he had was an idea that would lead a country into a housing crisis. I mean, he was talking about bringing in foreign investors and uh, having more homes for tourists. And I mean, it was really and, and undermining social housing. And it was really quite incredible. It was almost like a parody of you know like a skit of of a someone like how to create a housing crisis when really he, you know he was talking about um the new reality for the Netherlands yeah really really horrible i just wanted to put that out there well, th- um thanks and, for that <laughs> yes <laughs> um uh how to organize um ownership is a really interesting question and and of course there's no the whole point of that discussion should be about diversity and plurality of opportunities you, it it would be. I never say, oh no, the pri- no private market. 
Mm-hmm. Of course, you should have private market, but you also have to have other types of tenure. You're not against other t- capitalism per se. I, I'm not, and I, I mean, I say that, and I get really beaten up for having said it in the film. I mean, do I have a problem? I think I say something like, you know, I don't, I don't have a problem with capitalism. Do I have a problem with capitalism run amok or something like that? Of course I do. And, and where capitalism is not being tamed by human rights, I have a huge problem. And, and I think that we're at a stage where we need that experimentation of trying to see if capitalism can respond to human rights values and principles. And that would then, to go back to the question about ownership, that would then require a more creative understanding of what secure tenure looks like and can, and can look like. It doesn't have to come through ownership. It can come through things like uh, community land trusts. It can come through cooperatives. It can come through social housing. Um, there are a variety of, of different tenure options that must be available uh, in any society. I mean, that only makes sense. You know, and that before neoliberalism really took hold, most Western European and um, in North America, most societies, there were at least a few options. And it was sort of understood that depending on your income level, what option might be most suited to you. Um, and and that has been erased. Now it, there's this drive for ownership, 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 uh, which doesn't suit every household type. One of the solutions in the Netherlands for this housing crisis is is building, 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 and building houses. A million houses uh, between now and 2030, 1.7 million according to others. Um, might this in some way be be a solution or is this oil to the fire? I'm not sure if that's uh, correct. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the right expression. Supply, supply, supply. Yeah. Look, I suppose... Every society needs, you know, constant supply and upgrading of supply and and uh, uh, creation of supply. But what supply for whom is the trick? Um, so, if you if you want to take a human rights approach, then you know you're looking at who is most in need because that's what human rights are about. It's human rights protect the the most disadvantaged communities and individuals, and so. If I were to go to city after city in Netherlands, I would probably find it's people at the lower end of the economic spectrum who are most in need. I would probably find that you have people living in homelessness. I know I know, I would find that. Uh, you have people living in shelters. You have people uh, living in very precarious housing, paying too much rent, more than 30% of their income, for example, on rent. Those are the people we need to stabilize. So do you do that through supply? Well, maybe, maybe you need more social housing supply. Maybe you need more cooperative housing, land, other kinds of um, avenues to secure affordable housing through supply. But that would it be targeted supply. What worries me about supply solutions is it's it's often governments saying that we need more supply and they're saying it in concert with investors and developers the very people who've created the crisis in the first place and so without some paradigmatic shift without a change in approach to supply no supply is very worrying as you say it could just 
be fuel to the fire. If you look at what's happened in Ireland, I find this so fascinating. And it's a, it's a sort of small case, but it's an important one. Um, I learned of a community just outside of Dublin. So it's like a a commuter community, you know, they the people living there would be working in Dublin. I think it's 40 minutes away or something like that. Um, Maynute, it's called. And there was a new housing complex built. So like, a, you know, like almost like a little mini suburb. I think 350 homes or something like that were built. And the, they were intended for first-time home buyers. Um, so supply for a group that's probably in need, young people, young families, maybe. And So I think a few of them were purchased by the intended target. And then the rest of them, so 35, I think, were built, were purchased by families. And the rest of the houses were purchased by an asset management firm, a private equity firm, who is now renting out those homes at a greater rent than a mortgage would have been for those homes. So that's the fuel to the fire, right, that you're talking about. And that's very worrying. I mean, I, I, I get critiqued. In fact, I get trolled on the internet, <laughs> on Twitter. I get trolled when I say I'm concerned about supply. Um, because it, people are like, well, we need denser cities. And what I mean, maybe not in Netherlands, but uh, in other parts of the world, like North America, for example, oh, we need more more density. And you're, 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 you're uh, putting a uh, you're dampening the idea of of creating more housing. We need more housing. We're not creating enough. And I'm I don't dispute that we need to create some more supply, but I want that supply to be targeted and consistent with human rights principles. And I don't hear anyone suggesting that. Even even affordability, like oh, we're going to build. Governments will say, oh, we're going to build affordable housing or. of any new building has to be, in quotes, affordable. And then you look at the affordability measure, and it's unaffordable. (laughs) So 80% of market rent is commonly used. And the other thing that irritates me about supply generally is that's what a lot of governments around the world, city after city, they'll say, oh, yes, we're going to build and 25% of new builds will be affordable. Well, why is it that in Utrecht, 25% will be affordable in Vancouver, 25% in, um, te- in, in, in Phoenix, Arizona, 25%. Those are three very different cities with very different needs and realities. Why would 25% work for all of them? It suggests to me some developers sweet spot where that's all they're willing to do. That's the maths that works for them. And it's not maths that works for the actual population in need in the city. What if, what if we do nothing? What if we just let the current situation go on? Uh, what will our cities and societies look like in, in 10 or 20 years? Mm. Well, it's, it's hard to predict, of course. But if the trends continue and... Um, private equity and the other big financial actors continue to eat up the assets. I mean, Saskia says there will be stasis at some point. Um, Well, in the film push, she actually says she thinks stasis is being reached, but recently I was on a panel with her and she, she admitted she was wrong (laughs) because of course, during the pandemic, there's been a shopping spree, the private equity firms and insurance companies and pension funds have been eating up uh, residential real estate. So there probably is some saturation level, but then what we're looking at is 
I think Saskia calls them mono, monocultural cities, um, where, you know, it's only wealthy people or mostly, you know, wealthy people living in the cities. Um, you have people commuting at, you know, long distances to get to work. Um, you'll have some communities that are ghost communities, in other words, empty because no one's living there. They're just homes that are used for um, investment speculation purposes. So I don't think it leads to happy, vibrant uh, diverse cities. I think it leads to more inequality. Um, and I mean, already you can see that cities, you go to city after city and sometimes you feel like you're in an airport, you know, it's like, oh, there's Zara and there's H and M and there, you know, it's, and it's because they're the only, um, corporations, the only people that can afford real estate in a city, right? Are these big multinational corps by in terms of retail. And so, I mean, we're already in Starbucks and all that. We're already on that downward decline, I think. Um, I had hoped the pandemic might produce something different. And I think in some cities it has. But of course, Main Street, as we call it, in many cities has been destroyed. I mean, if you want like the number of closures um, as a result of the pandemic. So, and that the ability to, to thrive in a pandemic is really hard. So it'll be interesting to see in five years who survived, who survived the pandemic. My last question, what do we really need to make the shift then? Is it a new financial crisis that we need? Is it mass public protest on the streets? Is it, what is it that, that's, makes you come out of bed every morning to, to work on this issue? Yeah, good question. Uh, I mean, I think, yeah, if anyone knows my history of advocacy or my theory of change, um, they'll know that I always say my theory of change is the kitchen sink, which is, which means, you know, throw everything at it, including the kitchen sink. Um, because, you know, change isn't easy. And so, um, I do think for sure we need social movements, grassroots movements, movements of tenants. That's essential because that's how we know what the issues are. That's how we understand what it is that tenants feel would, would make the world a better place for them. Um, and it's tenants who fall into homelessness, right? Every homeless person has once been housed. So, um, uh, it's, it's, it's tenants and it's migrants. So, um, very important. Uh, you once said always, every tenant should know who his or her landlord is. Yes. There's a big movement now about, you know, who owns our cities, who owns our housing. And I really do think that every city should do an audit. Um, and, and in Germany, that is coming from the people themselves. There's a, a, a movement of tenants who, who are trying to figure out who owns their buildings in each city. So I think there's seven cities involved in a big research project. There was um, a, a, some research that came out from 25 different journalists across Europe uh, talking about cities for rent, they called it. And they were looking at who owns our cities. I think that we need... Um, paradigmatic shift in terms of legislation back toward protecting tenants and uh, facilitating people living in homelessness into housing and 
a change to legislation and policies that enable the big financial actors to carry on the way they do. I mean, I, I didn't talk about the preferential tax treatment some of these actors get. They do also. A, a lot of them don't pay any income tax, for example, even though they're they're deriving huge benefits from the properties that they own and income from the property that they own. So just making that change making it very difficult to to make such uber profits off of property would would obviously um curb financialization. So I think there's got to be a whole mix of 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 activities uh and and governments need to um really start recognizing what are their human rights obligations. They've signed and ratified international law and they have to start implementing it. I have a last question as well. We are talking about international investment capital a lot, about politicians. But at the same time, we see a lot of homeowners who are getting dollar signs in their eyes when they think about their real estate portfolio, about their home or homes. Is the housing crisis in that sense also an individual problem? Mm. If I start going after every homeowner in Canada, for example, that is happy that they're, the home that they bought 10 years ago is now triple in value, value, and I put value in quotes, because all of this is a fiction, we know that. Um, If I start going after those individual homeowners directly, um, I lose sight of the system that they are part of. And so they've been offered a system and they're just using that system. I want to go after the system and the people who created that system and change that system. And that might end up devaluing homes that might end up uh, in correcting for this overvaluation of property and those homeowners may hate me for it (laughs) Uh, but I didn't go after them directly I went after the system and they trusted the system to make money and now they're going to have to trust the system to make for better societies and more equal societies thank you so much for being with us it was a pleasure speaking with you it was a great conversation thank you You were listening to the Dependance podcast. Our editors are Sereman Diaz, Fari Tabarki, Geert Maarsen and myself Thijs Barends. Music composition and recording and mixing is done by Plug Studio. And the graphic design is by Studio Spaas. The Dependance is kindly supported by the Creative Industries Fontanel and the Municipality of Rotterdam. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Subscribe to our podcast. And check our website, thedependance.eu for new episodes and live events. And let us know who we should talk to next.